0: i been thinking a little bit about these this bunch of Psalms that, that come together, Psalm 120 to 134, and this morning Psalm 130, Nigel just prayed there about, about where we are, whether we're on the mountain or, or where we're at. Psalm 130 starts off with us in the depths, <laughs> in the pits, uh, as, as low as we can go, um, so let's, let's read it, Psalm one. 30. Just thinking this morning, I, I rely so heavily on using the, the big screen here, and uh, and I was thinking someday when we get guest speakers back, nobody's going to have a Bible, and the guest speaker will think this is an awful church because everybody's just sitting there looking at the screen rather than opening a Bible. So you're spoiled rotten with this this big television. Um, is it going to work? It's not working. Well, that's great then. That. No, it is changed, Daniel. It is, it is changed. We've, we've had a... Maybe you're not that spoilt. Let's try that. There we go. All right, Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for, the Lord is, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from their sins. Do you have any favorite songs that you play in the car when you're driving? Um, we're at a sort of point in life where not many days go by that you don't have to leave an infant somewhere, uh, it's, whether it's football, or dance, or a Bible study at a friend's house, or CE, or music, whatever. There's, there's quite a lot of uh, running about to be done. And uh, I actually don't mind it that much because I like a wee sorta of 10, 15 minute in the car on my own with the music on, uh, on the way back from leaving somebody off. I quite, quite enjoy that, especially on a Saturday night, I find it just gets the head charred a wee bit. And I'm, as, I'm, as I'm bringing the girls into CE, I'm driving along in the car thinking, right, what am I going to listen to on the way home? I've got about 15 minutes. Um, what, what three songs will I listen to? Usually I end up listening to one song three times instead of three different ones, but just that I, I enjoy that time. Uh, I have my, my driving songs, and I'm sure you as well have songs that you like to listen to. And Psalms 120 to 134 are the road songs of Israel. Those are the songs that they would have sang as they traveled up to Jerusalem three times a year to go to the feasts that they were called to go to. And and they passed the journey by singing these songs. They're all quite short psalms, about maybe six or eight verses long. They all would have been memorized by the people and they would have sang them along the road to keep them going. The journey was not easy. It was rocky road, uneven Uh, you could twist an ankle quite easily, you could lose your footing, it was hot, you could get tired, you could get discouraged. And so what you did was you all sang these great old tunes together to encourage one another. And this is one of them, Psalm 130. It starts off in the depths and uh, Eugene Peterson in his message translation puts the first verse like this, help. (laughs) You ever prayed like that? There's hardly a day goes by, I don't open my eyes in the morning and say, help, you know, <laughs> just whatever it may be, help. Um, he says, I've hit rock bottom. I'm in the depths. In fact, in, uh, you know, I love a wee bit of Latin, and in Latin, the title of the psalm is De Profundis. If you've ever heard the word profound, if somebody comes out with something that's really deep, you would maybe say, boy, that's a profound thought. Well, that word profound from Latin, de profundis" is the, is the title of this psalm, from the deep. The psalmist is in the pits, okay? He's not on the mountaintop. He's not sort of, uh, he's not on the, on the high places. He's in the depths. Help God. Anybody in the depths or been in the depths. Like it's life's experience. It'll come to us all, and it'll come probably several times. Maybe you're in it. Maybe you've been in it. Maybe you think you see it coming in the depths. Maybe of pressure, financial pressure, job pressure. Maybe it's illness or bereavement. Maybe it's a strained relationship. Maybe it's just general discouragement and weariness from from maybe well, there it goes again. That's the church the church bell. <laughs> <laughs> Time to go home. I said, "Folks, bless you all. <laughs> have a nice day." Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Maybe you're just you're just burnt out. You're weary. And one of the first things that we need to understand when we face these challenges and these discouragements in life is that we have to acknowledge them. Straight off from the first verse, the psalmist cries out and he puts his suffering and his position in the depths and his predicament right out there in the open in front of God and anybody else who's ever going to sing this song. He does not hide it. He doesn't bury it. I don't know how many times you sometimes hear people saying this. I don't have a problem with such and such. Do you know anyone and uh, they have a profound problem with something that's wrecking their life? And they keep telling you, I don't have a problem with that. And you're like, yeah, you do. (laughs) You do. And it's destroying you. And as long as we don't acknowledge the things that are putting us in the depths, we're never going to come out of the depths. As long as we hide and deny suffering and challenge and, and issues that we have, we're going to be there forever. And the psalm begins with this anguished prayer. This this is reality. This is the way a prayer should be. I love on a, on a Tuesday night whenever we pray and you can just hear the reality of people's hearts. They're not really worried about getting the words right or who might be listening or whatever. It's just a sense of an overflow of what's in the heart. And the psalmist is in anguish. He's in the depths and this, this cry comes from his heart to God. He brings it all out into the opening. He is, he is not, he's not embarrassed about his suffering. He doesn't try to hide it. You know, being a Christian, I think we, as, we, as we choose to follow, I say this sometimes to the kids in school when we do Bible studies in school, you have chosen to follow a man, the God-man, who was crucified. Okay? Of all the people in history you could choose to follow, you've you've chosen the guy who was crucified. And following him will probably likewise involve suffering. We don't avoid it. We don't deny it. We don't try to fix it. We accept it and we face it. It's part of being a Christian. To not sort of push all your challenges into a wee box and hope that they don't ever spill out of the box and cause bother. There has to be acknowledgement of the depths we're in. We live in a culture where everyone's goal is to be perpetually happy and healthy. And social media has probably taken that and just multiplied it by infinity. Where where all you see is everybody's highlights. I have never seen anyone post a video on Facebook of their three-year-old having a tantrum right? It'll always be we cute three-year-old out for coffee with mummy and daddy and and, and your lovely wee pictures and at the park and the painting they did in school. It'll never be them screaming and throwing stuff about the house. All we get on TV, social media, loads of places, we just constantly get this barrage of happiness and joy. <laughs> and then whenever we're struggling with something, it is so hard to, to bring it out and say, against this tidal wave of everybody else's you know, perceived joy, I feel awful. (laughs) And the psalmist says, don't do that. Don't hide your suffering. Bring it out. Declare it. Declare it in the presence of God. Declare it in the presence of God's people. Don't pretend that your life is perfect. Don't deny it. It's not the biblical way to live. There was a guy called Abraham and... Abraham was a very old man who had a promise from God that he would have a child, but there was no child. And his body and his wife's body both were physically beyond the age of of having children. But Paul reflects on Abraham's story in Romans 4, and he says, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. He faced the fact. Abraham did not deny the challenges, the difficulties, the oppositions that were in his way. He faced up to them. And a a, a sort of a wrong, a a false gospel can invade the church where we just pretend that bad things aren't there. They are there. And Abraham faced them, and it says he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but he was strengthened. He faced the reality, he faced the opposition, he faced the challenge, and he was strengthened in his faith, gave glory to God, and was persuaded God had the power to do what he promised. If you just sort of piece those verses together, you've got this lovely sequence, without weakening in his faith, He faced facts. He did not waver through unbelief. He was fully persuaded that God could do what he promised. That is how a follower of Jesus faces up against difficult circumstances. And the glib answers that we sometimes get and the social media highlight reels that we look at and the attempts to deny suffering, they rob us of of our humanity in the face of suffering, and they make pain much more painful, much more difficult to bear because we keep it to ourselves, almost ashamed of sharing it. I wonder how many people you lied to this morning. (laughs) And by that that I mean how many people asked you how you were and you said, fine. (laughs) The standard Northern Irish answer. And some of you are fine and that's great. Some of you aren't. You know, we can and we can't fulfil First uh, Corinthians twelve twenty six, I think it is. It says, "Suffer with those who suffer." If we never just open up about the fact that we're struggling, then we can't encourage one another in our suffering. That so it doesn't mean you sort of you, you just empty yourself every time somebody asks you how you're doing. But I think there has to be relationships, and there has to be connections within the body of Christ that that we're able to say, you know what, I've just had a really rotten week. I don't feel good at all. And another thing that keeps us, I think, from doing that is the news. You know, you've maybe had, I've had a a, a tough old week, and then you think about Ukraine, and you think about the, the magnitude of suffering that's taken place, and that causes you to think, well, my problems... I'll just keep them to myself because I don't really want to say that I'm having a hard time compared to, to these people that are having just unspeakable trauma. But that's wrong as well. It's not to not to belittle the trauma of what people are going through, but don't let it stop you from being honest and open about suffering and trial. Just because there will always be worse things happening in the world than what's happening to, to any of us always. Don't let it cause us to clam up and not share where we're at. Nothing will enlarge our troubles more than if we ignore them. So be like the psalmist. Take Eugene Peterson's simple way of putting it and learn to say, help. (laughs) You know, how many times you just something happens and you're like, help, God, please. Uh, Some, some, Challenge has come that I wasn't expecting, and the cry of the psalmist is to say, "Lord, listen to me, listen to me, be attentive to my cry for mercy. Listen, in the depths, crying out to God for mercy, for God to hear him." And there's there's a Scottish theologian, or there was a Scottish theologian with a with a crazy moustache. Look at that thing. His name is P.T. Forsyth, and he said, the worst thing that can happen to a man is, and I'll complete the quote in a minute, I wonder what, what, what you would put in there, a woman, a man, a woman, you know, whatever. The worst thing that can happen to a man is to have no God to cry out to out of the depth. That's good. The depths are not a good place to be but the worst thing he said that can happen to a man is to have no God to cry out to out of the depths. That's good stuff. The Lord is mentioned eight times in this psalm, over and over again. It's like, you know, we all have mannerisms when we pray, and, and I find myself when I'm praying I say, Lord, over and over again. Lord, would you would you do this? And Lord, help that person, please, Lord. And Lord just keeps on coming in over and over again in every sentence multiple times. And that's the way the psalmist is here. Eight times in eight verses, he mentions the Lord. And as we see, he mentions the Lord who forgives sin and the Lord who comes to those who wait for him and the Lord who has steadfast love, the Lord who redeems. And because of who God is, because of who God is, we can, in the depths, face up to whatever suffering is coming against us. And we see in the next verse, in verse 3 of Psalm 130, a possible reason for his predicament. He's in the depths, he's in despair, and he's crying out to God, and he then starts to talk about sin. And it could be that his own sin has got him into the pickle that he's in. It might not be, I'm speculating, But he talks about the depths and then he talks about sin. And you see, one of the things that I think humanity fails to grasp, and even in the church, I I, I think we sometimes fail to grasp, is that our greatest problem is sin. (laughs) It is sin. It's not the price of diesel. (laughs) It's sin. That's our greatest problem. It's not sickness. It's sin is our greatest problem. It is not your your boss or your work circle, it is sin that is the greatest problem that humanity faces. Whether it is our own sin or the sin that others commit that affects us. Sin is our greatest problem. Whenever Jesus met the guy who was who was lowered down through the, the roof of the house, his mates carried him, he was paralyzed, and they pulled back the, the, the covering on the roof and they, they lowered him down. Uh, this paralyzed you know, obviously from, from the neck down, can't move, can't walk, can't do anything really for himself, relies on his friends. And when they bring him to Jesus, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And I can sort of imagine just a moment because I, I sometimes I'm, I don't know, just the, the, the funny switch goes on. And I can imagine his four mates and him all looking at each other saying, well, what's good's that? I can't walk. And I came here to get healed. And you've just told me, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus, you've misdiagnosed the problem here. The problem is I need to be healed so that I can get up and go along with my life without having to be carried about by my mates. But he, Jesus has not misdiagnosed the problem. <laughs> the problem is sin. And he goes on to heal the guy as proof to all around that he has authority to forgive sin, that he's not just spoofing. But he, di- he says the, that, that's the problem. That is at the core of humanity's issues. Sin. Not just sickness, and in, in fact, whenever the angel told Joseph what what, what he was to call Mary's child, he said, you're to call it, or you're to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. It is our greatest need. And then these beautiful words come in verse four of Psalm 130: If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you. There is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. The psalmist starts to, he sees the source of the problem and he starts to see where the remedy is. And I would say, as as I've reflected on this psalm this last day or two, I've I've sort of pulled out of it what what I would call essential human needs. You hear a lot of talk about about human rights. And I would say in in terms of, of living a thriving human life, um the way god intended it fully alive in his image living well we have lots of ideas maybe about what living well looks like but in the course of this message i want to give you three things that are essential human needs if we're going to live life to the full and if we're going to help others to do so as well and the first one i've got is that we need to be forgiven If people are not forgiven, if people are carrying the guilt and the penalty of sin and the shame of it and the regret of it or whatever and do not know they are forgiven, they cannot fully live well as God intended. That, that, that sense of guilt and shame or regret or whatever will always be hanging on them and holding them back. And because we've been about the church a long time and because we sing about God's forgiveness and because we take bread and wine when we have a meal together and we think about forgiveness a lot, we can get a bit familiar with it maybe. We need to marvel at the fact that we are forgiven because we can't live without that. You know, Physically, we can't live without food and water and oxygen. But, but in terms of just being a human being fully alive, we can't experience that unless we have received forgiveness. I'll bring in a song again, as I've been doing a lot lately. Love my songs. This is Brian again, Brian Fallon. He appeared a few weeks ago as well. And he has a song called National Anthem. And in the song, he, one of the lines says, what, what's left for God to teach from his throne? M- making the point that, that society has become so arrogant that we, we don't really need God anymore. We've got everything figured out. We've got science and technology and all this knowledge and the internet. And you know what, what's left for God to, to teach us? You know, we don't really need him anymore. But then he goes on the next line to say, and who will forgive us when he's gone? Powerful, powerful words. Realizing that if God is pushed out of society, then society cannot be forgiven. This is the awful danger of our culture that just just marginalizes or does away with God altogether. We then create a human society where one of the greatest human essential needs cannot be met. Because people need to be forgiven. And if God is pushed away, who's going to forgive? Humanity needs forgiveness. There's a song, oh, it's quite old now. Catherine Scott sang it. I don't know if she wrote it or not. I can't even remember the the title of it, but there's a a line in it that says, I trade these ashes in for beauty and wear forgiveness like a crown. (laughs) A crown. Forgiveness is not something shameful. I had to be forgiven because of such and such. Forgiveness is a crown. A crown. It is an honorable and beautiful thing that helps us to live. Towards the end of the psalm, I'm going to come back to the middle bit as I as close, but towards the end of it in verse 7, the psalmist writes and says, Israel, God's people, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is unfailing love. That, I would say, is the second essential human need. I don't think a human being can thrive And live fully in the image of God as God intended if that human being does not know they're loved. Primarily by God himself. We need to know that we are forgiven and we need to know that we are loved. We have that fundamental essential need to know that we're loved. And God the the word there in, in verse seven, unfailing love, that's that wonderful word that comes into the Psalms all the time. Hesed in Hebrew, steadfast love. Unfailing love, ongoing love, rock solid, not fickle, not moody, not likely to blow hot and cold, unfailing love. We are loved. So what do we do? Having cried out to God in the depths. We're still there. <laughs> what do we do? There are two things in the middle of the psalm that, that we are told to, to do or that we see the psalmist saying he's going to do. In, in verse 5, it says, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits and in his word I put my hope. So there's waiting. And then in verse 6. He says again, I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. There's waiting and there is watching. And the waiting first. What are you waiting for? I'm not good at waiting for stuff. I really ticked. Amazon Prime has ruined me. Absolutely ruined me. You ever go on to order something and it's about like you know, lunchtime, and you think, I'll get this tomorrow, and then you realise you've missed it, and you won't get it tomorrow, and you're just clean raging, like, and you have to wait, we're awful at waiting for stuff, absolutely awful. What are you waiting for? I guarantee half the room right now is probably waiting for a delivery of some kind, <laughs> and wishing it would come a day early so that you can get your mitts on it. Are you waiting for a phone call from somebody? Are you <laughs> This. Are you waiting for me to reply to a text? <laughs> it could be a while. Um, we're all waiting for something. And the psalmist says, I'm, I'm waiting for the Lord. And it's not a passive waiting. It's not a sort of the waiting room where you're just sitting there wait, you know, waiting to be called and just faffing about on your phone, just doing, doing nothing, just killing a few minutes. It's, it's not that sort of waiting, just that, that, you know, that, that God will, hopefully God might show up. It's, it's active. Whenever you read in the Bible about waiting, it is not passive. It is active. While I'm waiting, I'm doing something. And here's another song, because I'm just on fire with songs. There was, a, there was a film, a Christian film, came out, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago. It's, it started a, a bit of a, a trend of, of making Christian movies sort of better than they used to be made. Still, budget was very small. Um, but but they, they improved a wee bit. And there was one called Fireproof and it was about a firefighter and about his marriage. And, and there's a song in it. Now, you, you, most of you probably won't like it. It's like a big American anthem type thing and you, know, you might not like it, but there's a great line in it. It's written by a guy called John Waller. And, he, and, he, and in the, in the chorus actually is, while I'm waiting, I will serve you. While I'm waiting, I will worship. While I'm waiting, I will not faint. I'll be running the race even while I wait. In powerful words. He's waiting for something, but he's not just sitting around. He is getting on with life, with worship, with serving God. He's not fainting because he knows Isaiah 40, at the end of Isaiah 40, that those who wait on the Lord renew their strength. They become stronger as they wait. They receive God's strength. So even while he's waiting, he's still running. Sort of a oxymoron he's waiting but he's running the race while he's waiting and as the psalmist sings writes and sings about about waiting for the lord he's not just sitting there saying well i'm just going to twiddle my thumbs and take the huff and until god shows up and do something I'm, I'm just going to sit here no he's active he gets on with his life and to wait for the lord is very different from what we might sometimes say to each other you might hear people saying in hard times hang in there just hang in there, buddy, you know, hang in there. No, hang in there is garbage. Hang in there it depends on my ability to hold on. Wait for the Lord depends on his ability to show up. And that's different. So we need to cur- encourage people, encourage one another and encourage ourselves to wait for the Lord rather than just hanging in there. And I love what, what that verse ends with, verse five. In his word, I put my hope in his word, hope in his promises, hope in the great story of God's faithfulness to his people, particularly in the Old Testament, his faithfulness to his people, hope in the revelation of his character. These These are the things that we get from his word, his promises, his faithfulness, his character, and ultimately that word and that revelation of who God is became flesh in Jesus. And he is our ultimate hope. In his word I put my hope. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And the the last of those three essential human needs, I would say, and probably if I thought about this more I could add to it, and you could as well, but for now this will do. Third essential human need is to have hope. To have hope. A human being without hope is a tragic, tragic thing. People need hope. I remember seeing a great t-shirt one time. Was it a t-shirt? Was it a meme? I can't remember. But it said, you know, playing on the word dope, <laughs> it said a leader, doesn't even need to be a leader, a Christian is a dealer in hope. Not a dope dealer, a hope dealer. Someone that supplies hope to people. I think humanity, if we're going to live and we're going to bring others into a place where they can live fully alive in the image of God, people need to know they are forgiven, they are loved, and they have hope. And with those three things, a whole lot of living can be done the way God intended it. So we we are to we are to wait and we're also to watch this image of a watchman. Have you you know when you're waiting are you also watching Samuel whenever somebody buys something on Amazon Samuel will sit and gaze at the post box. If if something's been ordered true if something's been ordered for for this youth Uh, He will actually go up and down to the post box at the end of the drive dozens of times, just continually checking on the same day. And I'm like, Samuel, whenever the guy delivers it, I will get an email instantly to say, your parcel has been, doesn't matter still. In case there's a window of time between the parcel being dropped and the email coming, he's gonna get in there and get it. Waiting and watching. Here's what I used to watch out for. I spent a lot of my teens and early 20s inside these lorries, loading them, tipping them, hitting them, <laughs> and uh, it used to be on a Saturday night about six o'clock, you'd have everything cleared up and you've swept the floor of the warehouse and, and everything's neat and tidy and the forklifts are parked and uh, you're, you're, it's maybe 10 to six and you're waiting to six o'clock to get out of there and you're watching the gate because if another lorry comes in, you have to empty it. And if that, that might mean eight o'clock, nine o'clock on a Saturday night, and you'd just literally be staring at the gate on a dark night in December, waiting to see our headlights going to come down the road. And am I going to be here for another two or three hours waiting and watching. It's rare in the Bible to have exactly the same sentence, the exactly same phrase word for word twice. So it's important. And the psalmist connects that when we're in the depths and we're waiting and we're watching, he connects that with the image of this watchman who would have walked the walls of the city at night and his only job was to watch. He longed for the dawn more than anything else because that meant his shift was over. He had a very important job. He He was looking out for danger, but he didn't really actually do very much. He could not make the earth turn faster to bring the dawn quicker. All he could do was watch for it. He couldn't control it. He just had to wait for it. He knows it'll come. Past experience, he knows dawn will come and he watches and he waits and he hopes. And the psalmist pulls in this image of the watchman waiting for the morning. And one of the the things that he had was a sign. The watchman had a sign that let him know that the morning was coming. I used to have a sign. I, I used to get bundled into the car on a Saturday morning by my mother and brought to Belfast. And that inevitably meant a long time in Marks and Spencer, sitting on those seats at the door, just honestly going mad, wondering how long this was going to be. But the drive from home to Belfast when you when you were we, just seemed like the longest thing ever. It, it, you know this. Oh, it was huge, and this, this was my sign that we were nearly there. <laughs> that, that just that sign is for, Belfast eight is forever etched in my memory. Not ten or anything else, but Belfast eight was my we're nearly there moment on this this shocking long drive. I, that was that was my sign. For the watchman on the walls of the city, waiting for the morning, he had a sign as well. And his sign was Venus. Venus would be at its brightest towards the morning. In the darkest part of the night, the appearance of Venus in the sky would be at its brightest. Only at the darkest point of the night did it become really, really bright. And whenever the watchman saw that bright Venus in the sky, he knew dawn was very close. That was his sign. And in fact, Venus then became known as the Morning Star. I guess they didn't realize at that time that it was a planet, But they called it the morning star because when they saw that really bright, bright light in the sky, they knew morning was coming. They knew the darkness of night was nearly over. It was at its darkest, but it was nearly over and dawn was coming. And therefore they talked about the morning star. And Jesus, the last words that he uses to describe himself in the Bible, and I'm sure he thought about it, The last words that he uses in Revelation 22, he says, I am the bright morning star. I am shining in the darkest of nights to let you know that dawn will come. Dawn will come. The darkness will not have the final word and you will not be left in the depths. The dawn will come. Keep watching. Watching and waiting are the distinguishing characteristics of people who have hope. If you've got hope, the Christian hope that Jesus is risen from the dead. If we have hope, then we're able to watch and wait in whatever circumstances we're in. And those who are without hope in similar circumstances can't deal with them. This Psalm 130 faces suffering head on. (laughs) Sings its way through it and exhorts others to do likewise. And whenever you're suffering, sometimes you can get many, many advisors and many helpers, but that's not, you know, support is, is, is good. But the fundamental things that we need, according to this Psalm, when we're in the depths is to know these three truths. And these are maybe three of the most important things that I'll ever put on my beloved screen. We are forgiven. We are loved and we have hope. No matter what the depths are, how long we've been in them, how bleak they may be, it does not change those three facts for the people of God. And we need also to know that our place in the depths is not out of God's reach. There is no depth deep enough that he cannot reach it and he cannot hear our cry from it. And one of the things that I left out, and with this I close intentionally at the very start when I read the psalm, I left out the bit that nobody reads. In your Bible, the number of the psalm is not part of the Bible. Okay, The, this, the actual number of it is not the word of God. The chapter breaks and all of these things are, are not... You know, these have been put together by men to help us find things and get things and, and the actual the actual Psalm number is not really that important, one thirty. But after that there will be a title to the Psalm before verse one begins. And it's very easy because it's not part of verse one, it's very easy to look at the title or look at the sort of music that it's been set to and think, Well, this is not really important because it's it doesn't come after the "we one that tells me the verse has begun. But it is important. And it is part of God's word. Whatever, whatever's in there to, to say what type of song it is, is important. And it, it just hit me last night as I was mulling over this. He's in the depths, okay? He's as low as you can be. He's as low as you can be. Right down, you know, underwater. In the depths. And what type of song will he sing in the depths? It's called a song of ascent. Because in, whenever the people were traveling up to Jerusalem singing these songs, 120 to 134, they were, together formed a group of psalms called the Hallel and called the Psalms of Ascent. These were the songs that we sing as we go up to Jerusalem, up to the presence of God. So they were, that's why they were called songs of ascending. And I think it's really powerful that this psalm that starts off saying, I'm in the depths, it is a song of ascent. In the depths, I am going to sing. And as I sing, I will ascend. I will get my focus on God and ascend out of the depths with my song. The psalm is a prayer, but it's not just a prayer. It's to be sung. We are to sing our way out of the depths and ascend back up to Jerusalem, to God's presence. We're going to do that. Let's pray before we do.